G'day mate, 40 here. So, in Manly, looking over the Sydney Harbour. It is Thursday afternoon, 2.16pm. I think it's the 12th of January here in Australia, and I was listening to the Subversive podcast hosted by Alex Kashuta, and her guest is the academic Michael Bailey, talking about uncomfortable truths in sex research. You're a terrible person if you deny it. It's a dark confluence, uh, but I, I, so I think these people mostly believe what they say. They, you know, they believe, and who are these people talking about gender clinicians who are pro-transition, who won't even consider alternative treatments and explanations. You know, it's all, everybody's transgender who says that they're transgender. Right, so this, this touches on some topics that I often like to talk about, right? Just because people say that they're something <laughs> doesn't mean that they are. Right, you can't just take people's self-representations as gospel truth, and you can't just take uh, expert proclamations as expert truth either. And just because something's popular and trendy doesn't make it true or good either. And you have to look at the incentives that are operating for why people are saying and doing the things that they're doing. So, for example, in the medical profession, it has a long history of unnecessary surgeries such as tonsillectomies. For decades, doctors were performing tonsillectomies, even though the evidence was clear that the overwhelming majority of them were useless. Uh, we're medicalizing and providing medication to people with normal human sadness. And this is an opportunity for the doctors to get more money, more power, more prestige. And so, every to extend, every profession wants to extend its power, its status, and its influence. Someone identifies their own business, Jews have been pretending to be goys for centuries, you're telling me that one Hispanic guy can't identify as Jewish. I have no idea who you're talking about, but uh, we all tend to you know, play up aspects of our identity that are in our best interests. So I think you're talking about the congressman from New York, Republican congressman, did he claim to be gay, did he claim to be Jewish, did he claim a whole bunch of things that weren't factually correct, right? I don't think this is unheard of, right? When you want something, right, people tend to exaggerate. So this is, this is normal, right? When people put something on a resume, it doesn't necessarily make it true. Like, why would anyone simply accept what a politician says, ipso facto? Like, anyone who just accepts someone's claims from a stranger, right, you're being foolish. And so someone who identifies as, you know, the opposite sex or gay or Jewish or whatever, uh, the wise person has some skepticism with regard to people's claims. So are we saying that males pretend to be females to gain advantage sometimes, or it's to indulge a fetish, or it's, you know, it's their genuine lived experience, bro. I hope that you don't, uh, you're not going to deny someone their lived experience, right? So someone, their lived experience may say X, Y, Z, that doesn't mean you need to buy into it. So looking out across the bay there to Watson's Bay, about five miles to the right of that, is uh, the Sydney Opera House, and then this is downtown Manly you're looking at in the distance. I think they, they believe it, but it, it's also, you know, it's nice for them. They get paid to uh, help people transition. Right, so 
helping people to transition their sex is incredibly lucrative because there are so many follow-ups, right? It's not just a one-time thing. It is a recurring stream of income. So, and, and both of those uh, facts make it harder to change one's mind. You know, if, if you're getting paid to do something, it's hard to consider uh, that maybe you shouldn't be. Yeah, if someone's income depends upon not understanding something, they're never going to understand it, right? No one's going to risk their income. And you know, a lot of these people just specialize in one, one type of mastectomy, one type of reassignment surgery, and you know, it's a, it's a bit hard to, to, to walk back specialization. Um, yeah, you can, uh, you can help people live their dreams, and you can make a ton of money. Now, what's not to love? Does insurance pay for gender transitions? I'm pretty sure that insurance is required to pay for gender transitions. It, it is also interesting to me that, um, like you've noted before, most of the people who are public and visible um, about transgender issues tend to be uh, autogynephalic males, and you can kind of see that. They're also... So this auto, autogyna thing, that's when men get off on looking at themselves in women's clothing and imagine themselves as women. Uh, being made love to so it's a particular type of fetish interesting or maybe this is just a selection bias that you see these guys but they're very kind of people who used to work in very masculine areas you know people in the military and business ceos like uh, very very uh, male typical behaviors except for the fact that they wish up at i know 45 and decide that it's time to it's time for a very big change so um is, is this a, a pattern that's uh visible to you as well or is this just the fact that you know there are many many people like this and the most visible people will obviously be the ones that are in high, high places like rachel levine or knows uh, yeah, big, big names. So I uh, don't think that there's any correlation between autogynephilia and having feminine interests at all. I think autogynephilic males, their interests as far as occupations and so on, tend to be as masculine as other males. And so it's not surprising to me that we would see military, ex-military, current military people. We probably see more than we would expect. And I do think that is probably a selection bias. You know, leader's going to lead. So the stereotype uh, most associated with it's actually uh, computer science for, for some odd reason. And, you know, we, we want to study this more uh, objectively, but we haven't uh, been able to. So I was just thinking, most Jews, for example, have worked in white-collar professions uh, since the 15th century. And I'm thinking that if you work in a white-collar profession, if you work in an abstract profession like computer science, that you're probably you know, far more comfortable living in an abstract world and so you're probably more open to all sorts of things that people who work in blue-collar professions would find incomprehensible, like including sexual transition. So probably the nature of you know computer work. I mean, look at look at our own Elliot Blatt. I mean, he's like wide open to all these possibilities that you know ordinary hardworking blokes like you and me just find astounding. Yeah, but that is the stereotype that. I kind of feel like transsexuals are highly disproportionately computer scientists, which is one of the most masculine occupations. Yeah, I mean, this is well-known and accepted here at the Subversive Podcast. Uh, we're not fighting it. Um, they can have it. Uh, I also, uh, maybe this is a bit, you know, not necessarily very scientific, but more esoteric, but it does feel like something correlates with an attraction to, to, to disembodiment. You know, being a computer programmer, you're essentially, you know, relegating yourself to being a brain in a vat. You're just... Right, the smarter you are, right, the more you live in an abstract world. Right, probably the more pleasure you have thinking, right? Because if you're particularly athletically gifted, right, you'll do a lot of things, you know, with your body playing sports. And, you know, we all tend to do what we're good at. 
So if we're good at thinking and good at living in an abstract world, then we're going to hang out there you know, much more than you know if our primary skill was you know playing golf or catching fish. You know, sending out impulses, receiving them, structuring data sets, you know, moving pieces around in, in kind of virtual space. You're not necessarily very connected to your body. You're, um, you know, you, you, it's easy to see yourself as a meat suit. It's easy to see yourself as customizable, especially because a lot of these guys uh, have interest in, in fantasy role play and in, in games that, you know, do exactly that. They take you out of your body and into this character type life. And I can see how someone who does that for years, decades upon decades, can see, okay, this situation that I'm in is not very comfortable, you know, I, I feel dysphoric, you know, even I feel dysphoric about stuff in my life, essentially, you know, sometimes I have a bad time and I... Right, so if you live in an abstract world, right, the more likely you are to get disconnected from your body, probably the more likely you are to, you know, fall for all sorts of, of things that are, like, way outside of reality. Like, you think that reality would usually begin with being, you know, in touch with what's going on with your body. You know, if you've got a headache, if you're feeling free, Maybe blame it on the meat suit, and then you might want to start customizing, and it seems accessible if you're already in that mindset. So the developmental process that I believe happens with autogynephilic transsexualism is as follows. First, I believe autogynephilia happens, and that happens during the adolescence, same as other sexual feelings. And it, it typically, most often happens the way I said, where a boy will discover it turns him on to imitate a woman and wear sexy underclothing and so on. And that hypersexual aspect of autogynephilia lasts, you know, just... Analogous to hypersexual or male development general, generally, you know, adolescence and, and on. But as that persists, again, a subset of autogynephilic individuals, they start creating a female identity and, and becoming attached to it. And so it, it is no longer strictly sexual all the time. So I think the, the bigger issue here is that we all tend to become like what we desire, right? So attracted to something like the, the more we create this you know abstract fantasy you know, the, the more likely we are to move towards it but it is something that does preoccupy them and not just when they want to have an orgasm so it's the creation of a, of a different character of a different role essentially um yeah that's i think in, in one of your papers um you know that there's kind of a third type maybe because kind of the asexual transsexual it sounds like like that you know someone who's kind of transcended the primarily sexual domain that this came from and then they just they just fell in love with the character so much that it's not really about sex they just kind of like being cheryl and uh they, they like the whole customization of cheryl yeah the, uh, and so you know i think a lot of people would like try to transcend reality they try to transcend the body and you know, they just want to live in this uh, abstract world or you know a second life online and uh, that's a real good way to get into trouble Guess who, guess who they're attracted to? 
every day is <laughs> yeah exactly oh, man. Yeah, and uh, so we had a paper uh, under Yeah, so uh, the author Neil Strauss, when you read his book on love and relationships, he talked about how his father had an amputee fetish and had this, you know, enormous collection of uh, amputee movies. And uh, he, he married his mother, who was a cripple, and that was a large part of the attraction for him. We studied men attracted to amputees. We studied men attracted to animals. Guess what happens to a subset of them? Become furries. And uh, men were attracted to morbidly obese people. Guess what happens to a subset? become morbidly obese. Yeah, yeah. So these these uh, people, I think that these three categories that we're studying have more in common with autogynophilic males than autogynophilic males have in common with the other kind of human sexual. I don't think that autogynophilia has anything in common with femininity, really. And that's one of the main reasons. Wait, what about Rachel Levine or Caitlyn Jenner? I mean, they seem like the epitome of the feminine to me. Since that the uh, people who tried to ruin me back in 2003 did so, I uh, injured them narcissistically. It's, uh, they have, uh, it's very important to them to think of themselves as really like women. This theory says they're not. And And uh, Elliot says nicotine gum promotes insomnia. Well, when do you chew it, right? I mean, you probably shouldn't chew it after noon so that you can come down. How long does the nicotine high last? Um, <laughs> yeah. Noticing some, some, of these, uh, some of these people, I mean, you can see that there's effort in, in this uh, surgery and everything, but just it, it's just sad in the sense that, you know, just from, from the skull shape to just the proportions of the face to everything, you know, like the, the wonderful cover you have for your book. I mean, this is essentially the, the general feeling that that cover evokes is every time a normal person who's not completely indoctrinated, you know, beholds an autogynephalic male um, who, you know, is trying, everyone's trying to, to protect their feelings, but, you know, it is what it is, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, and, you know, gay men um, are also not women, <laughs> even very feminine gay men, uh, but very feminine gay men, I think, are naturally feminine. I don't think anybody taught RuPaul, at least uh, until RuPaul started studying red, uh, but RuPaul was a very feminine boy before. Right, so Michael Bailey says there are two types of transsexuals, one type of the homosexual, who just has always felt ultra-feminine, so this is, like, for him, a logical culmination of how he's felt his entire life. And then there are these auto type of uh, transsexuals who essentially fall in love with themselves dressed and acting as women. Oh, he chewed it around 3 p.m.? Okay, and what time were you able to get to sleep? How long does the nicotine high last? I don't know if RuPaul is now a she or he, but before RuPaul was RuPaul, RuPaul was a very feminine boy. And I think more that way. And in that sense, I do think it, it, someday we might find that there are parts of the brain that make RuPaul that are kind of like a woman's brain. But I think that when we are able to know more about autogynophilia and its representation in the brain, we will not see anything similar between women and autogynophiles. Another uh, common belief asserted by some autogynophiles, especially those in denial, is that, well, women are autogynophilic too, uh, meaning that uh, women are also turned on by the idea of being women and wearing sexy clothes and so on. This came from a study by a guy named Charles Moser in which he uh, asked basically that, you know, imagine you're like getting dressed for a date and you're wearing sexy clothes. Does that, is that sexually arousing for you? Well, a few of these, his respondents, we get like 30 respondents said yes. But uh, recently during the past year, we did a big study of this question uh, comparing autogynophilic males to natal females and to natal males without autogynophilia. And the differences between autogynophiles and natal females were huge. Natal females do not 
sit around and say, oh, I'm so turned on by the idea of being a woman. You know, it's just, it's not a thing. No, there is something that I think is, is similar. I mean, you know, obviously not speaking from science, but just kind of observations throughout my life and just being a woman. It's this idea of... Okay, so Elliot says he doesn't get high from chewing nicotine gum. It's just a lift. And the boundaries between the lift and the lack of lift are not yet clear to him. Kind of being regarded from from the outside, you know, the idea of a man seeing you as attractive. That that is, you know, exciting for women. You know, that's why the whole makeup, the whole thing, and the whole. So we're looking out here at Sydney Harbour. We've got about what 50 yachts sailing across the harbour. Same time, we've got a ferry coming through. So what's going to happen when the ferry runs into these yachts? The process of it is, is interesting, uh, but the, the end result is you kind of. You don't arouse yourself. The idea that someone else finds you irresistible, that's what's arousing. Right, so the normal person does not arouse himself, right? It's that someone else finds her, her, him, her arousing. That's the, that's the turn on. context. Right, right, yes. And, you know, the, the questions on the autogonophilia skill, the truth and the ledger include, have you ever been sexually aroused by the idea that you are a woman? By, by the fact that you have a female body. Is that, you know... Yeah, that's what you can kind of see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it's... Uh, I, I appreciate them trying. <laughs> nice try. Um, what, what do you think about... Um, you know, because it, it, it's been documented. There's definitely um, quite a lot of kind of viral spreading of certain types of transgenderism on the female side. I think the Abby Goldshire wrote, wrote a book about this. Um, and uh, that, that it kind of propagates almost um, almost like a meme. You know, people hang out in these circles. You know, all, all the girls in the class are suddenly transgender. Um, but what do you think about this as a more general thesis? Because, yes, let's say teenage girls are easily influenced. But the idea that having all of these paraphilias out there in pornography, on the Internet, easily accessible by everyone of every age, at every stage of development, you know, I know a lot of parents are not exactly clued up or clued in about all the pornography that their children are watching. So uh, people are exposed to a lot more of this imagery and these concepts and these possibilities than ever before. And do you think that this might push the spectrum into, you know, people actually wanting to live out this stuff more than back in a, in a time where these fantasies were just not available? You know, this, this type of, no, people weren't accepted with these ideas from, from, from the outside. So I don't think it's pornography so much that is, you know, converting people. desires being explicit and then heightened. So I don't think it is pornography that's turning people into transgender. So rapid onset gender dysphoria, which uh, you've had guests talk about, is a, certainly a thing, and that is, um, I believe that many, perhaps most, perhaps almost all of the adolescent girls whose gender dysphoria began during adolescence would not have transitioned even 15 years ago, would even have gender dysphoria 15 years ago. Right, so almost all the adolescent girls who are transitioning now would ne never have done it uh, 10 year, 15 years ago, right? That's how powerful society is. Like, we think that we're doing and thinking all these individual things, but often we are simply saying and doing things that are fed to us by our community. Oh, I think it's entirely a social construction, entirely a, a new phenomenon. But I think you're asking about, like, autogonophilia. I understand that uh, autogynophilia is associated with the kind of pornography called sissy porn, which even though I study uh, autogynophilia, and I've, not, you know, I've watched porn only for a word, but uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever come across sissy, sissy porn. I think you'd actually have to seek it out. And if somebody seeks it out, I'm suspicious that it is an exogenous cause. That is, it's, you know, I wouldn't be this way if I hadn't seen it. I think, you know, it's more likely that somebody was looking for it. Yeah. I, I, I do think that 
it is possible that social there is a cultural influence on the decision to transition among even more traditional kinds of transsexuals, the autogynophilic and homosexual transsexuals. And it would be like this. Being trans is cool now. It's not something to be ashamed of. And if you have the desire, you're more likely to find somebody encouraging you to transition than to find you discouraging you, at least outside your immediate family. Yeah, and it's it's a, I'm not saying an easy way, but it is one way of, you know, someone who might be like a a, a white male, but not in, a, in a, an extremely good social position, you know, kind of a low status type person who, um, you know, maybe feels, like I said, a bit disembodied with things too. Does, does anyone seriously raise their social status by becoming a transsexual? Asking for a friend. I mean, you may have fantasies and delusions that you may have to raise your social status with that sort of transition, but uh, I don't think it actually happens in the real world. Get a different type of status to get into a community that you know might find him or her more more interesting and more more compelling. So yeah, I mean, I can I can understand that there are lots of incentives like that. You know, if something's high status, uh, the people will come. They'll they'll gather around it somehow. Yeah, I think that the autogynophilic explanation to some autogynophilic males automatically takes the status away from autogynophilia. So if, if that's the reason why I'm doing it, then I don't want to do it. But not all. There are some autogynophilic males who who. Yeah, I, I find too. A lot of desires simply disappear when you understand what's happening. Like simply getting insight into something I find transformative. So uh, I had a therapist who said, you know, Dennis Prager has such a profound influence on you, and you're writing this website to try to show him that you can have an influence on him. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah, I think there's something to that. And it just removed all need or necessity to talk about Dennis Prager in my therapy anymore. So that happened about uh, uh, 20 years ago. Uh, desire to transition remains even after they've accepted autogynophilia as an explanation for their desires. For those people, I'm not sure it's a bad decision. <laughs> you know, if you know why you want it, if you know the costs and the benefits, then I'm not going to raise much of an objection. I'm more concerned about people who don't understand why they want to do it. I'm more concerned about how I got to fill the males who've not even heard of the concept of or who angrily rejected. Yeah, and uh, I know there's a large community of detransitioners in kind of the, the, the female space where you kind of have these girls who started on puberty blockers, maybe they had mastectomies, things like that, early on, you know, in their teenage years, uh, and then they realize, oh, this is a grave mistake, they're trying to wind back the clock. And, um, but is there such a thing in kind of autogynophilic males? I, I could imagine that, you know, having having the surgery is a very serious step to take, and if you're doing it for the wrong reasons or you don't have a, you know, good picture of, of, of you know, your mind, of a good theory of mind of what, what exactly is going on with you, you might have second thoughts after the fact. But I, I haven't really heard about many of these cases, I mean. The, the uh, data from uh, about so-called regrets, people who wish they hadn't had sex reassignment surgery, most data that we have are relatively old, say 30, 40 years, and they're mostly from clinics that were very careful and didn't let people transition unless they had had a couple of years living as the other sex uh, to make sure that that's what they wanted. And those data did suggest a, a higher rate of regrets among autogynophiles versus homosexual transsexuals, but it wasn't high. Was let's say maybe ten percent were autogynophiles regretted versus you know three percent the other time. But we're in a whole different world now. Nobody is making people live for two years as the other sex before they get medical intervention. And it wouldn't surprise me to have more regrets. In fact, I will. Ex I expect that we will have more regrets among the adolescent females who transition like these. As far as autogynophiles, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we'll find. Yeah. yeah, I mean, only time will tell. I think this uh, on mass uh, surgery campaign has, I think, only got going in the last few years. So, yeah, it takes a while for people to, to, to wake up from, from the 
party. Um, there's, a, there's another subject that you've, you've written on, and that might be even more controversial, especially for my audience. It's um, pedophilia, which, you know, on the right is a bit, uh, it's a bit of an ex- extra spicy thing, and I understand why. I mean, I'm uh, viscerally also very affected by it. I have, I have children. Uh, it's, you know, <laughs> that's something I want to think about. Um, and I, I understand why people um, have this visceral reaction. Because... So whether it's pedophilia or homosexuality or whatever your urge is, like, I think, you know, any experiences all sorts of urgent urges for which he can find no appropriate moral expression. And so I think that the conditions of the conservative who understands that human nature is not basically good is much more at ease with the wildness inherent in human nature and therefore with its need for uh, suppression or transformation. There's no deeper instinct than that of protecting a child, especially for someone who has one. So um, you are going to take a little bit of a kinder tone here because you have studied, you, you know people who have these instincts, you study the phenomenon, you're closer to the field in which these things happen. To me, these are these are monsters and projections on the walls, and I don't, I hope I don't know any pedophiles, so I, you know, I, I, don't, I cannot, um, I have no shred of empathy for, for this phenomenon, so that's kind of where, where I'm starting from, so you know. Yeah, we generally don't have any empathy for people who have problems that we don't have, for people who have desires that we don't have, for people who have challenges that we don't have, for people who have life experiences that we don't have, for people that we can't relate to, for people in our groups, right? We generally don't have empathy. We usually only have empathy for, for people with whom we share something in common. I'll let you just, just say why, why maybe I should soften my case or why, why there should be any sort of uh, attention, positive or you know, interest paid to this field. Okay, yeah, uh, thank you. The first thing that I w- want to say is that we must distinguish two things. Pedophilia, which is a sexual interest in children, from child molestation, which is sexually abusing children. Not all pedophiles molest children. And I am aware of a large group of pedophiles who have organized to mutually support each other so that they will live child celibate lives. They will never touch children. And Yeah, so people who get together to... You know, encourage each other to live an upright life, right? To acknowledge that there are tendencies in a self-destructive, antisocial, damaging direction, and then support each other to abstain from that behavior, right? That is a holy group. I find that uh, I find it admirable because uh, you know they do have their their desire, their sexual attraction to children is just as strong as heterosexual men's attraction to women, homosexual men's attraction to men. And they are also, you know, they, they have lived and shame and so on. It's not that you think that they should be proud to be pedophiles. I just think that they should not be shamed for having feelings that they're not going to have and live good lives in spite of. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's all, all sounds good on the face of it. I think the, 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 the primary pushback to that would be that, you know, this, these things are at least you know, stigmatized for a reason in the sense that it, it feels like, you know, am I, am I going to trust that this is the case? You know, because this is a bit of an honor system type thing where they just, you know, they, they're organizing, they say they're not going to do it. I'm like, how can, you know, how can I be sure? You know, how, how much of an integration to society can you allow? Um, you, know, um, you know, maybe there is a case to be made that, okay, if this is your sin, you might need to be exiled from, from the rest of us in one way or another. There might be, you know, chemical castration. You know, call me crazy. There, that might be an option. There are different methods, different levers that we can pull, but there has to be a clear line between you and my children that has to be enforced 24 7. And I don't, I, I mean, I'm a nice person, but I'm not that nice. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think that they're lobbying to babysit your children or, or to live uh, as a community of pedophiles who are known to be pedophiles. I think that they're mainly wanting to just support each other and be left alone. And, and believe me, there are people trying to harm them as a community, which I see as very unfortunate. 
again, I think that we should, there, there's stigma against harming children and we should keep that. I'm not sure stigma against attraction in children per se would make any difference because I, I, I think whether uh, a male is going to be sexually attracted to children or not is determined by the time he's born. And I, I want to bring that dilemma up to you and I want to do it as sensitively as I can. Um, so give me a moment. I, I know you've recently had a child. Uh, so but I don't want to talk about your child. Let's talk about a mother who has a son who she raised and he's been a good son and she loves him. And it turns out that adolescence he discovers he's attracted to children. Every pedophile in the world had a mother. And I'm pretty sure every pedophile in the world had a mother who didn't want him to be a pedophile. What would she want for this son? Would she want him to be demonized and set off from society? She surely wouldn't want him to act on his feelings. Or would she want him to be helped in the best way possible? There's no help that will make him not attractive to children. It just, you know, people have tried. We don't know how to do it. It, it, it. Someday it might involve some kind of brain surgery, but we, we don't know how to do it. Uh, your example about sex drive reduction, castration, chemical castration, that can help somebody who has, who's at risk. Like my uh, first introduction to this topic was that I was an expert witness for uh, a pedophile who had actually molested two girls by using a toy gun to get them into his car to touch his Okay, the, the wind is just killing the audio quality, so I will talk to you later. Another critical distinction typically blurred between pedophilia versus hemophilia. Yeah, yeah, big, big difference between, uh, you know, what, what age, right, pre or, or post uh, puberty. So that's uh, Alex Kashuta there talking with researcher Michael Bailey.